Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio podcast, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Jeff Bannister. I'm speaking today with Dr. Marcela Vasquez-Leon, Director of the University of Arizona Center for Latin American Studies and Professor of Anthropology in the School of Anthropology. Dr. Vasquez's research and teaching focus, among other things, on environmental and maritime anthropology, political ecology, and social vulnerability to climate and environmental change in Latin America and the Southwest. For several decades, she has worked along the Gulf of California, from Guaymas to San Felipe and El Golfo de Santa Clara, to study and bring awareness to the ways in which broader shifts in public policy and environmental changes are affecting lives and livelihoods in fishing communities. Our conversation today turns around recent efforts on the part of international environmental organizations, scientists, and government officials, including the Mexican military, to protect the endangered vaquita marina fish species and the impacts those efforts have had on local fishing communities in the upper Gulf. We hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation, and we thank you for listening to and supporting the JSW Radio Podcast. Uh, Marcella, welcome to uh, the Journal of the Southwest Radio. Thank you, Jeff. Very nice to have you. So I, I wanted to uh, jump right in here to ask you a little bit about the um, the work that you've been doing in the upper Gulf of California on the Mexican side with, with conservation and, and fisheries. And I know that you've been working in the Gulf of California for a long time. Um, but I thought I'd ask you first to just uh, lay out the the parameters of what I can see as a kind of a longstanding conflict in some ways between uh, conservation and the demands of conservationists and environmentalists on the one hand and um, the fisheries sector. And, you know, I know that it's a lot more nuanced than just one side against the other. So maybe you could you could help us understand what's going on there. Yeah, the vaquita became a huge controversy. Um, maybe you know when 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 there was a ban on fishing in 2015, but even even before that, um, conservationists since probably the mid 1990s have been talking about the vaquita, and the vaquita in the Upper Gulf, you know, it is an endemic species. Uh, from that area and fishermen, you know, I've been asking fishermen about it for a long time and they always say that it is a very sort of timid animal and they hardly ever see it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started working on this issue of the vaquita, not continuously, but on and off since, you know, beginning of the 1990s uh, through a program with WWF. So we started, they actually hired us, and this was people from the Bureau of Applied Research in Anthropology, and Tom McGuire was very involved, to look at the situation of the vaquita, to try to understand how, you know, if fishermen were actually, you know, the culprits on the decline of vaquita. And we started working in the upper Gulf, and we did a long project there. Uh, and, it, you know, the consensus for us interviewing the communities is that they really had very little to do with it. Uh, most of, of, of the fishermen had never seen it. Elderly fishermen talked about seeing it uh, very once in a while. Everybody was, you know, saying that they, they weren't catching it on, on shrimp uh, nets. 
So basically they were saying the same thing in 92 that they were saying the last time I was there, which was in 2018, 2019. So conservationists, however, continue to talk about how fishermen were actually leading to a total decline of the vaquita population. At the same time, you have ecologists in Mexico who had been arguing that to really understand the decline in the vaquita population, you had to look at um, ecosystem change. And this is basically a lot of the arguments that the fishermen also were making and continue to make today. I mean, they don't have any proof. They don't have, because it is difficult to, to prove what is actually happening with the vaquita, but they say from their knowledge of the region uh, that you really have to look at the ecosystem and the ecosystem of the upper, uh, upper Gulf of California has changed dramatically. And it started changing dramatically in the 1950s with the damming of the Colorado River. I mean, the Colorado River used to flow into the Gulf of California mm -hmm. um, very strongly. And, um, and fishermen actually would go into the river to fish. I have a lot of interviews and oral histories from fishermen that I collected, you know, in the 1990s when I was doing my dissertation work in Waimas in the Gulf, in the in the lower part of the Gulf of California. Mm -hmm. So fishermen from all over the Gulf of California would go up to the Delta to fish. It was a very, very rich fishery. Mm -hmm. And all that started changing when the U.S. started to make to build dams all along the Colorado River for agriculture and also Mexico, right, uh, for agricultural purposes in in both the Mexicali Valley and uh, you know in in California, the Imperial Valley and all those areas. So there is no question that there has been a tremendous change in the ecosystem, and in fact there are a lot of scientists in in at the University of Arizona, several that have worked on decline of different species. That are um, that have to do with ecosystem change, you know, endemic from the region, and there are several endemic species in the region because this ecosystem is actually very unique. You have at, at some point you had the you know Colorado fresh river water coming down, uh, and then you also have the very rich waters from the Pacific coming into the Gulf and creating these amazing tides that are huge. Mm -hmm. All that has obviously changed. You still have the waters, the rich waters coming up from, uh, you know, the, the currents in the Pacific, but you don't have the water, the fresh water coming from the Colorado River. So what used to be water that had low salinity, now you have very high salinity. Mm -hmm. concentration in the waters of the upper gulf and that has completely changed everything there's there used to be for example a white shrimp uh that was very uh, abundant in this area and and you don't see it anymore mm -hmm. um so there's a lot there has been a lot of changes the gulf continues to be a, a very rich area for fisheries but the composition has changed. And some fisheries have been able to withstand the changes in salinity. You have like brown shrimp and blue shrimp that continue to be abundant. You have curvina, uh, mackerel that continue to be abundant. But at the same time, you have other species that have declined. So the big controversy with conservation groups is that conservationists have tended to look at the vaquita as a single species. 
focusing on, on these species in terms of conservation and sort of ignoring the ecosystem changes or even saying that the ecosystem changes have not had any, any effect, any impact. I think that's a huge thing to say when you really don't have proof of it. Mm -hmm. It's it's really hard to argue that the ecosystem hasn't had ecosystem change hasn't had a, a, an impact on vaquita when it has had an impact in other species. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, one of the the results of of conservation is saying for years that it was the fishermen that were. Uh, overfishing, no, that it was because of the fishermen that the vaquita was declining, led to these sort of experiment, I would say, in which they convinced the Mexican government that they had to close the upper gulf to fishing. And of course, the, the, um, the, the communities in the upper gulf started as fishing communities in the 1920s. And, and the main uh, fishing resource at that time was the Totuaba fishery, mm -hmm. which is this big, you know, big uh, fish that is about one, it's big, it's it's as big as the vaquita, maybe, um, I don't know. Six feet or seven feet. Six feet yeah, I was thinking neither, six feet or so. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this, this is, these are uh, big fish and they were, um, there was a market for the for the swim bladder uh, from the Chinese, so it became very lucrative, and that's how uh, the community started. The community of San Felipe and Santa Clara. It was overfished, and it became endangered in the 1970s, and 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 that is a clear case of overfishing. Mm -hmm. The when you look at overfishing of a specific species, you have to also look at the at the way the fish the the species. Um, behaves. And this is something that fishermen talk about a lot. Uh, Totuaba is a, it's a, what is called a very catchable species. Mm -hmm. When fishermen are catching Totuaba, and fishermen used to talk about this, the Totuaba would come to the fishermen. So it, it's a very easy species to fish. Mm -hmm. They don't hide. They actually like to play with the boats. They like to be near the fishermen, so it's very easy to fish. Mm -hmm. It's very different from the from the vaquita, that is a species that fishermen have never been interested in. It has no commercial value, so there is no interest. But it's not only that, is that the vaquita is, a, is what fishermen say, it's a very shy species. They hear noise and they hide, so they hardly ever see it. Mm -hmm. The main species that they catch in the upper gulf is curvina that can be caught with caught with line, so you don't necessarily have to catch it with, with with um with a net with nets. And the, and actually that started to be a program for curvina that was very successful. But the conservationists never talk about that. Uh, fishermen have proposed because um, the totuaba became abundant again. There was a a program at the University of Baja California that led actually to the increase in the Totoaba population again. And they let out the, the, the Totoaba to the wild again, and it became a, a viable fishery again. Uh, but, but yes, you need, um, you need these big nets and these nets could eventually, you know, potentially catch vaquitas. There is one picture from the 1960s that is shown all over again and again of a, a vaquita taught in a Totoaba net. In mm -hmm. the 1960s, Totuaba nets used to be made out of um, cotton, mm -hmm. and they don't break very easily. So we know that that 
picture is from the 60s. Um, I have not seen maybe maybe one other picture of a vaquita caught in a totuaba net. But um, fishermen proposed catching totuaba with line so that there is no chance that the vaquita can be can get entangled in a totuaba net. That uh, proposal was completely ignored by conservationist groups. So fishermen said, okay, we're going to do a two-year trial. That was sort of the negotiation that they did, or they thought they were doing, right? It was going to be a two-year trial. There were a lot of strikes, and they were saying to the Mexican government, we will go along with the closure of the fisheries, but we need to be able to subsist. So basically, the Mexican government decided to um, to pay them for not fishing in 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 a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that they were going to wait for two years. So the fishermen decided to go along with a two year ban on fishing because they uh, they felt that it was a, an opportunity to show the world uh, that they were not the ones that were you know, the culprits in terms of the decline of the vaquita population. Mm-hmm. They were sure that after two years, they were going to say, okay, the vaquita continues to decline. This has nothing to do with fishing, and we're going to open the fisheries again. Uh, the The negotiation was that the government of Mexico was going to uh, pay a certain amount per month to fishermen so that they could continue to subsist without fishing at all. So all fisheries were banned. The two years passed and the vaquita population continued declining. But instead of saying, okay, maybe the fishermen have nothing to do with it, what conservationists started arguing is that there was illegal fishing of Totuaba. And that was the cause of the decline. Uh-huh. So they continued to blame the fishermen. And fishermen were saying, we are not fishing Totuaba. This is not the case. And in fact, the market had already incre- you know, uh, um, become viable again for Tutuava and there was enough Tutuava to actually produce for the market. Mm-hmm. But f- a lot of the fishermen in the communities were very afraid of going out fishing because they were gonna get fined. Uh-huh. Um, so what ends up happening is I think what, what the closure did, and I don't think this was intended, is that it allowed the entrance of people who were not fishermen, and a lot of them were um, narco-traffickers, into a very lucrative market. Mm-hmm. And this is this is what you know the community has argued that you know narco-traffickers started to go into the Gulf of California to start you know fishing totuaba. Totuaba is easy, easy to fish. They uh, they don't know much about fishing. I mean, and I'm sure they hired people to do the fishing, not not necessarily from the region. They would, uh, of course, bribe everybody so they nobody find them, nobody put them in jail. You know, these are narcos, right? And this is what the what people in the community are saying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would just dump the nets in the water. And there are usually, you know, when when the fish when fishermen are fishing is in season and the fishermen are out in the sea, they uh, if they find a net that has been abandoned, they take it out. They want to make sure that the sea is clean from nets because it impacts them. If they throw the net and there is another net on the on the bottom of the sea, it mm-hmm. it, it can damage their own equipment. Mm-hmm. 
So when the fishermen stopped going out into the sea, you start finding all these nets that are abandoned by fishermen, either fishermen or people who are not from the region. And these are different nets. These are thicker than the chinchorro, which is the, exactly. the shrimp net, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The shrimp net it has a much lower, smaller diameter in its opening. Mm -hmm. And it's a very thin filament um, thread that can be easily broken by a large fish. Mm -hmm. Totuaba nets, because this is a large fish, uh, have um, thick monofilament that is hard to, to break. Mm -hmm. So if a vaquita would get entangled in a totuaba net, yes, they they could actually die there. Mm -hmm. If they would get entangled in a in a in a shrimp net, no, they would break break it very easily. What fishermen argue though is that vaquitas will not approach a net because they are very timid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They will hide when they know that fishermen are around. However, What's if there are abandoned nets, but people who really don't care about the region. That can cause a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm being clear about all. Yeah, this. yeah, no, very much. So, uh, one thing I noticed, and you know, you, um, I was digging around doing some research for this uh, interview, and and you um, passed along a video that you did um, several years ago. Maybe it was that 2019 ish, or 2018. Yeah, 2018. Yeah, um, and I, I, you know, there are several interviews with different fishermen in there, and one of the the sort of threads of continuity across those interviews is most of them had never even seen vaquitas and they've been fishing for decades uh, in the yeah. upper gulf correct and that is when i started asking about it in the 90s it's it was the same answer as and in the 90s there was no huge deal about the vaquita at the time there was no reason to hide anything because at that time, the vaquita was not a controversy in the public eye, mm -hmm. right? It was only, only conservationists were talking about the vaquita. Mm -hmm. Fishermen, you know, a lot, they didn't care about the vaquita. They, some of them would ask me, what is a vaquita? What are you talking about? Uh -huh. So I would show them pictures and they would say, hmm, we've never seen that. Um, the older one said, yes, we've, we used to see it uh, once in a while. And then we stopped seeing them. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what they continue to say today. I think a lot of the younger fishermen have never, never seen it. I think one of the huge problems, and I think that's why I did the video, is that there is this perception among conservationists. So you have to look at social relations, right? When you look at, at all these claims about, you know, who's killing what animal and all that. Conservationist groups come from a, a very different social strata than fishermen right you have whether they are from mexico or from the us or from europe you have you know conservationists tend to be you know educated people who have gone to universities um therefore their knowledge is considered to be more accurate than the knowledge of fishermen who who have incredibly tremendous empirical knowledge because they go out to the sea every day mm -hmm. Right. However, their knowledge as fishermen is not considered important. It's considered to be less because they didn't go to university. Not considered. So that is a huge pro problem. Mm -hmm. uh, fishermen are intelligent people, like anybody in the world. You know, you have people who are intelligent, people who are not, you know, very, uh, who don't talk well, people who express themselves well. It doesn't matter what 
social strata you're talking about mm -hmm. you know sure however the fact that fishermen don't go to university in the eyes of, of this crazy world means that they know less and that is not the case these are a lot of these fishermen are are brilliant they know what they are talking about they are brilliant scientists who have incredible amount of knowledge that is based on empirical understanding of the world around them and of the of the sea in which they, they have been uh, a part of many of them since they are 12 11 years old to to say that they don't know what they are talking about is incredibly arrogant from from scientists who studied at universities and who also know a, a lot, but from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And this is what I find that is the saddest part of all when you look at conservation, is that you shouldn't have scientists against communities because both have pieces of knowledge that are critical to actually conserve resources and make sure that human beings can actually leave off the resources of you know, of the sea in ways that are sustainable. Fishermen care about the sustainability of the fisheries because they love the sea and they want the sea to continue being productive. They are also aware that they need to manage the fisheries. They know that fisheries cannot just go and be exploited as if they were unlimited resources. Fishermen know, and they know not from a theoretical perspective, because they, but because they have lived the consequences of over-exploitation of fisheries. So they have tons of ideas of about how to manage resources in a, in a good way, in a positive way. And they are willing actually to be enforcers of, of policies that they consider are, uh, are reasonable. And when you're talking about common property resources like fisheries, having the buy-in from communities is critical because really the communities are the ones who are there. They are the ones who can enforce reasonable policies, but they have to believe in those policies. And this is this is the clash that we see here. Mm -hmm. You have conservationist groups who, who come from such a different perspective, who think that conservation, that the best conservation is to, uh, to do what is called fortress conservation, which is the idea of the national parks in the US, where communities uh, cannot use resources at all. Mm -hmm. uh, that completely clashes with, with the logic of users. And, and, and with, with the idea that if, if local people who love the places where they live cannot live of those resources, but have to move to the cities, what are they going to do? I don't know. You're not only, how do you say that, limiting resources for the enjoyment of tourists, but you are creating what have been called conservation refugees. Mm -hmm. And that that leads to a loss of an incredible amount of knowledge, environmental knowledge that has accumulated through generations of these fishermen. Mm -hmm. These fishermen are intelligent people. They might not, you know, speak like uh, like a, like an academic, but that doesn't take away their knowledge. And this is the part that I find the saddest: mm -hmm. that they are unable to communicate because of issues of social class, because there is an assumption from the West. There is an assumption from academia that uh, people that come from local communities are not intelligent, mm -hmm. that they don't know what they are talking about. They don't have PhDs like we do. Mm -hmm. 
And to me, that's the saddest part of it all. And, and that is a huge problem, not only with fisheries, not only with conservation, but with so many other things in the world, with, you know, modes of, of, of production, mechanisms for, you know, markets and looking at economies. Okay, I'm not going to go into <laughs> No, I mean, I think, well, I was just going to say, so just to, just to pause for just a second. So it, it seems like, or step into a different realm here. Um, you know, the, the, the crux of the matter in many ways is the, the conservationist view that we have to save this species that is just about to go extinct, if not already, really, which is profoundly sad. Uh, and of course, you know, as a species ourselves, we're trying to grapple with our, you know, impacts on the environments on which we depend and doing it uh, many times in ways that are both clumsy and, of course, inflected with all the power relations of, of uh, you know, our, the broader uh, social fields that we find ourselves in. And in the realm of science, then um, big science with a capital S, royal science, imperial science, I, I in some ways you could say. Um, and I know that many will object to, to that, but I think that there's this is a classic case of that. Mm -hmm. The argument over, you know, whether or not the broader entorno, you know, the broader um, environmental relations that are ha uh, occurring in the upper Gulf and the sort of uh, you know, environmental history of damming, you know, the extent to which that plays into the species that um, has only been known to science for a very short period of time. And, and then by extension, then whose population, uh, baseline population has been almost impossible to establish. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's kind of the crux of the matter, because conserving that single species means you know by policy implication that you're going to focus on uh, the people who are fishing those uh, those areas do i have that more or less sketch correct <laughs> yeah i think so and 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 you know it is not just it is easier fishermen are easy sca scapegoats mm -hmm. and this has to do with power relations as you say you know, can the conservationists say the U.S. you should stop damming the waters of the Colorado River so maybe the vaquita will come back? No, mm -hmm. right? That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, can um, I mean it's not just and and then the very little water that may come in, uh, it's very polluted. That's the other part of it. Um, waters, fresh waters going into the Gulf in general, not only from, from the Colorado River, but the, from Sonora, the Sonoran River are highly polluted. Mm -hmm. And that is human use of water and, you know, pesticides from agriculture and all that. So, you know, the, the other thing is why stop fishermen from fishing if the vaquita is going to continue to decline? Right. What's the point? And I think and and of course, I have no proof of these, but I think there's another point that needs to be made here is that a lot of conservationist groups depend on financing and funding from donors. And when you create these situations of, you know, these these cute little species like the vaquita is going to end and you create this sort of sense of hysteria, donations keep on coming in. And a lot of these groups are making their living out of donations. And 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 to do that, they have to vilify fishermen. Mm -hmm. So it is very money. sad, but I think it has to do with it as well. There has to be a, a, a simple uh, good versus evil story, a villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Exactly. And for the Mexican government, I mean, I, I don't think the Mexican, I think for the Mexican government, there has been a great deal of pressure from the U.S. that if there, you know, if the vaquita does not, you know, uh, start reproducing itself again, uh, then there's going to be an embargo, a shrimp embargo on Mexico. And shrimp is an important product for Mexico. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the reason why the US, the Mexican government has gone along with this. So there's a lot of pressure that pressures that have not necessarily going to lead to the revival of the vaquita, mm -hmm. right? And are creating uh, this horrible situation for entire communities of displacement, of loss of of environmental knowledge, mm -hmm. and of forcing people into moving into jobs that are that they don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. Are we creating more migrants that are going to try to move into the United States because there are no jobs in Mexico? Mm -hmm. And because fishermen, what they know how to do is fish. And a lot of these communities, what they are experts at are things, works, and jobs related to, to marine resources. The restaurants, you know, the people who actually, you know, uh, fillet the fish and prepare it for, for sale in the markets. All those people are without jobs. You know, we haven't even, one thing that I haven't even touched on is the health implications of everything mm -hmm. uh, that is happening. And um, the level of obesity has increased since the ban of the fisheries because people are eating junk food. People who used to be very healthy are now eating junk food. They have to buy everything in the supermarket. There's no fish. There's no shrimp. There's no, nothing, you know, healthy protein that they were eating before. Mm -hmm. um, tourism is also declining because tourism go, used to go there because of the fisheries. So the implications are huge. Economic implications, health implications, and also, you know, the psychological impact on, 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 on these people who have been, these men who have been used to going out into the sea every day. All of a sudden, they are useless. What they know is irrelevant. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. And the vaquita continues to decline. I don't know. Maybe there are no vaquitas anymore as, you know, as we speak right now. Yeah, I know, I know that. Know just some you know searching and reading a little bit it, it seemed like the estimates the most recent estimates are something like maybe less than 10 yeah how do they know that i know that yeah. they have they have devices that they use to be able to listen to the vaquitas and all that but it's it's so i don't know i'm not a i'm not a, a, a i'm an anthropologist right so but you're but you're also an anthropologist who has done a lot of work with uh, fishery scientists over the yes. years. So I, I feel like you have a very strong sense of the uh, the dynamics of research and the ways that uh, scientists come up with objects, uh, you know, of a, uh, of study, basically. Right. You know, and how those things translate. So I, I would, I you know, I I I have a lot of um, you know a lot of respect for the work that you've been doing for a long time in the Gulf. And and I actually what I wanted to ask you is so you're talking about the impacts of communities, um, you know you have you have these different sort of constituencies and groupings of people, uh, fishermen and you know fisher peoples not a definitely not a homogeneous group, mm -hmm. um, scientists not necessarily either homogeneous group exactly nonprofit organizations you have Mexican scientists as well as uh, nonprofits and the Mexican government so you have a pretty big 
uh, complex field um, of interaction that you're that you've been looking at for all these years. Right. Um, I have a couple of quick questions that we haven't really haven't touched on. What are the sort of um, the main communities that are being impacted by all of this? And, you know, what are some of the main things that you've seen, um, the main, the, the primary impacts of the, the fishing ban? And also, have uh, these fishing communities mobilized politically to, um, to push it back against this? And if so, um, how? Yeah, so the, the main communities that are impacted, immediately impacted, are the communities of, of um, San Felipe, which is... I think the community that has been the most impacted and also Santa Clara, which is right on the Delta and the fishing community in uh, in Puerto Peñasco, in Rocky Point. But Rocky Point is a larger port that has a more diversified economy. Um, the economies in these communities are completely dependent on fishing. There is no agriculture. There is it's we're talking about a, a desert region where you have maybe six inches of rain per year. Uh, so really, it's the only thing that people can do is fish. And of course, you don't only have the, the people who are fishing, but you have a lot of other people that depend on fishing. Um, the fishing, uh, the processing, the marketing, the restaurants. You also have this sort of moral economy in a lot of these uh, fishing communities in which you know, elderly people who are not productive anymore, uh, people who are, you know, the, the, the most vulnerable people in the community, uh, perhaps widows or women that are single mo mothers, uh, people who have mental illness or people who have physical illnesses. They oftentimes would go to the beach to wait for the fishermen and the fishermen would always give fish to those people. Right. So it's it's this moral economy in which those who produce also help those who are unable to feed themselves. So that was that has been a very important part of the fishing communities in the areas that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Those people, nobody talks about them. Right. So those are the communities impacted. And of course, there are people outside of the fishing communities that used to have work in the fishing communities in the shrimp processing plants, for example. Mm -hmm. People coming from some of the um, uh, more um, agricultural areas would would come seasonally to work in in the processing plants. Uh, all those people have been uh, impacted as well. I think another one of the impacts is fishermen can actually be, you know, in good seasons they can be very productive, and uh, many of the, especially fishermen that are good fishermen, because you have all sorts of, as you say, it's not a homogeneous group. There are there are fishermen that are really good that have been fishing for generations and that do very well, are very successful, that shift from one fishery to another and will only fish during abundant times but they have the knowledge of the you know the way the species behave they have the gear to be able to switch they are very aware of the need to conserve resources and only fish during very specific periods of time those fishermen they have been seeing the decline and the and, and the probable impact in the future, uh, 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 economic impact. And a lot of them were already sending their children to university mm -hmm. to maybe be fishery biologists or uh, do other things. Those people who were trying to educate their children to do something else are not able to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. 
So you are creating these several gener. I mean, this is having an impact, a generational impact into the future as well. Mm-hmm. And how uh, how have these communities, if have they, and 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 if so, how how have they mobilized to kind of? They have mobilized a lot. They have been very vocal. They have gone to Mexico City. There have been huge protests. They actually negotiated with the government when the government said they were going to do the ban for two years. That's when the fishermen said, "You cannot leave us without a livelihood for two years." Um, and that's that was part of the negotiation. Uh, they have been very vocal. They made a video themselves. They have been on the news. They were um, there were a lot of strikes. There was you know strikes where they would um, uh, put barriers on the international road mm-hmm. that comes from the U.S. from Mexicali all the way to Baja California. So a lot of things were done like that uh, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's today the level, the morality is so low. And then of course you had the, you know, COVID hitting these communities as well. And so no, they, they try to be as vocal as they could, but they don't, people don't listen to them. These are not important people mm-hmm. as, you know, in the, in the, in, in the realm of, of a world that is dominated by power relations and where you know, social class is such an important thing. And and of course, fishing is not like agriculture, right? You don't have the numbers of people, the huge numbers of people that could actually disrupt. And, and, and one of the things that fishermen argue is say, if we all went out fishing, no matter what, they would not be able to stop us, but they haven't done it. Mm-hmm. So if you have, I don't know, 700 boats out there, mm-hmm regardless of whether it's legal or illegal what would the government do would they bring the military and start shooting people i don't know mm-hmm. because the other thing that has happened is that there's a huge at some point uh the military started going into these areas and you see a visible military presence partly in you know having to do with conservation or with the claims of conservation mm-hmm. partly having to do with narcos moving into some of these regions because we are in the border in border regions with the u.s mm-hmm. and i know that a lot of uh i mean i i lived on the coast of uh, sonora for several years and um and continue to have you know relationships with people um, there and i know a lot of stuff moves up the gulf uh, as well right and that has been happening since i started working there Mm-hmm. uh in the nine and you know beginning of the 1990s mm-hmm. um communities have always tried to stay away from that as much as possible uh but but the other issue that is happening is what happens when you have an, an entire population that is not may be able to make a living are you creating then spaces for people to get into businesses that they was we're trying to avoid in the first place mm-hmm. when people need money to be able to eat. So so the ramifications can be huge and are huge. Okay, a lot of things are, you know, things that we think might be happening, but we don't really know. And is the um so the the beta, the the ban on fishing is still um in, in place or it is still in place. And and that's one of the things that I want to do next semester. I want to go back to see what is happening right now. 
what is happening with these communities. I think there need to be a lot of, of, of research about the impacts of, of the van because it's been five, six, seven years, six years already. And, you know, fishermen have tried so many different things. They have tried also to propose different ways of fishing, mm-hmm. different technologies that I they know they are going to work in the Gulf. But the conservationist groups don't want to listen. Why don't they want to listen? I don't understand. Is it because then they are going to lose funding from, from these big donors? Mm-hmm. Who are um, the conservation? I mean, I know that so... You know, there are lots of videos to look at online about the Vaquita, a ton of U.S. news coverage and Mexican news coverage. And, you know, one of the the most prominent organizations, and this makes sense because it's very photogenic and it's very romantic in many ways, and um, is the Sea Shepherd group. Right. Um, You know, and they have the, I guess they, their sponsor purchased a, a used Coast Guard cutter, a very fast ship, and they're out there cutting lines and, mm-hmm. and know exactly what they're doing um being right. presence out there but one of the things i noticed in the videos is that that uh you know the mexican military uh, the marina is uh, is out there of course somehow helping them too and i think that that part of that presence is just a menacing force to keep fishermen from fishing out there yes all right so um is that the main is it i mean i know that there are other groups some who, what is the constellation of environmental groups and and also how um have they put so much pressure on uh, so much pressure or brought yeah. so much pressure to be, to bear on the US side that it's pressuring Mexico to to do this as well. Yeah, I mean Greenpeace has been involved of course as a very visible group. Uh the one that's really started was the I'm going to try to say it World Wildlife Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, also Conservation International. You have groups also like Pro Natura. Mm-hmm. And these groups are different, right? Some of them really are trying to, to figure out how to work with the fishermen. But the bigger ones, uh, it's more of, of you know, how they can market their arguments, how they can market their, their costs, right? Mm-hmm. Sea Shepherd, I actually was, you know, interviewing them. And these are young kids who are you know have this very romanticized idea about conservation and they feel they're going to save the world i think they have good intentions but i don't think they understand the context in which they are working and and you can't just go into a place and 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 play the good hero when you don't understand this place they see fishermen as threatening and dangerous and, 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 you know, I've worked with these communities for over 30 years and I feel right at home. They've I've never seen, you know, fishermen being threatening or even when they are threatened themselves, you know, uh-huh. these are good people. They just want to make a living. They just want to live in peace. These are rural people and they are they are portrayed as as horrible monsters. And of course, for people, these young people that go into Sea Shepherd that come from Europe or industrialized countries that are sort of very urban people, uh, they see these fishermen as the other. Uh, They are afraid of them, but they never bother to talk to them. Mm -hmm. They never bother to get close and to really to try to understand. So there are a lot of very interesting dynamics that are happening. You know, Conservation Inter- International and uh, the the World Wildlife Fund, 
uh, are are heavy duty organizations that have a lot of money and have a lot of of political power. Mm-hmm. And and it's hard to go against them because the world thinks that conservationists are always the good guys. Right. Mm-hmm. And like any human group in the world, there's everything. There's no black and white. The communities are great, but there's also bad people in the communities, you know, like everywhere. So to try to make this into a black and white issue is highly problematic. And it is not going to lead and it is not leading to anything constructive. The, the Mexican police, the, the, the Marine, you know, they are all exist and have existed in an environment in which mordidas or how do you say mordidas in English? Bribes are, are part of daily life. Mm-hmm. And if you have uh, fishermen that are hired by narcos to fish totuabas and they bribe, you know, the Mexican soldiers, that's going to go fine. Right. Mm-hmm. But the fishermen from the communities, they can't, they don't have enough to bribe, especially when they are not making a living. Mm-hmm. So, so there are things that are just common sense in, in my perspective. The video that, that you gave me um, the link to, there's a Mexican scientist whose name is uh, Salvador Galindo. Mm-hmm. Who, the uh, What is it? The Universidad Autónoma de Baja California Sur. Yes. Uh, and, and, and he has, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, what we've been talking about so far is just the ways in which science and conservation kind of have a, you know, mutually constitutive relationship that is that is political, oftentimes, um, and mm-hmm. of course, science has the claim that can have the you know um, the claim that it's it's apolitical. But in the case of uh, Dr. Galindo, he's saying that he's kind of supporting the argument of the that the fishermen are making, which is that this is a creature that's very affected by what's happened historically, you know, over the last five, six, seven decades with the damming of the Colorado River, but that the that the um, but the vaquita is actually not a, a marine species per se, um, or, a, a, you know, an open, what is it, a sea species, or ocean species. I know this is right. an idiot, but, mm-hmm. but that it's more of a um, an estuary-based or an estuarine um, fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, and he said, I don't have the science to back this up yet, but, the, but that we really need to look at this, mm-hmm. the extent to which this species is actually very affected by you know, the uh, the drying up of water into the delta, the um, basically the, um, you know, the receding of the, the mangroves and, uh, and the destruction of uh, estuary health in that region. I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, that it right. probably is at some risk for a Mexican scientist to be speaking out because there is a lot of uh, force behind the arguments and the claims that um, NGOs and environmentalists are making. Yes, and I know he has had a very hard time. He's already retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know Mexican scientists have been very pressured. I mean, the, the argument, I think it makes a lot of sense. You have huge inflows of fresh water into the upper Gulf of California that started, you know, going down and slowing and then almost ending. So this lack of fresh water inflows into the upper Gulf means that when you know you had you formerly had these when the when the flow was fresh water was coming in you had very uh, brackish estuarine lagoons in the delta and these brackish estuarine lagoons gave rise to a very specific um, um species like you know endemic to the upper gulf now those lagoons are hypersaline right 
Mm-hmm. It's not just that the level of, 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 of salinity has increased. It has increased a lot. Mm-hmm. And it has an adverse impact in the fisheries, in the in the all living species that are in that region. Uh, it has to, it really has to. And and I, a lot of research has been done with different species of clams, for example, species of shrimp, that indicate that that has happened. But it hasn't done on vaquitas because how do you do a research on vaquitas when you can hardly ever see them? And I mean, you also saw in the video that. The CIRVA group, which is the the, the sort of the uh, international recovery team for vaquita, they they decided that they were going to catch vaquitas and create these areas for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they tried to catch one and they killed it. It died. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard to catch one. So you, you really cannot study the vaquitas themselves because they are hard animals to, to have in a lab, right? It was very interesting because a few years ago, I went to present my research in a conservation um, conference in Mexico. And I thought, oh my God, people are going to kill me when I start talking. A lot of fishery biologists. Mm -hmm. And I was very surprised when at the end of my talk, I had like four or five fishery biologists who worked on different areas in Mexico came to me and they said, thank you. These Mm -hmm. are things that we cannot say. Mm -hmm. Uh, we cannot say that we have to listen to the communities. We have to go conservation, conservation, conservation. We cannot um, criticize the World Wildlife Fund or Conservation International mm-hmm. as scientists. It's very hard for us as Mexican scientists mm-hmm. because they see also that there is this um, hierarchy where U.S. scientists are. They, are, they have to sort of play or give give a lot of credence to whatever scientists in the USA, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where the best science come from, or that's the idea, right? So a lot of Mexican scientists themselves feel that they cannot be as vocal as, as Salvador Galindo has. Mm-hmm. And Salvador Galindo has been banned with from, from places, um, even though his arguments to me are very logical and make a lot of sense, like the arguments of the fishermen. Mm-hmm. And there has been nothing to disprove what they have said, actually, because if, if you come to me with proof saying that that the lack of fresh water in the Colorado River had no impact on vaquitas, if you can actually prove that, wow, then I will say, okay, the, fish, the, the, the scientists in the U.S. and these, you know, elite institutions are, are right, but they haven't done that either. Mm-hmm. So this is all based on on who has more power, whose whose knowledge counts and whose knowledge doesn't count. Right. It's a it's a it's a political question from top to bottom. It's a binational political issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is an incredibly rich and dense mm-hmm. <laughs> field, and uh, I think you know maybe I'll just end with a with a question about um, you as an anthropologist and. And, uh, you know, the, the, the field of anthropology, you know, the, obviously it's, it's you know, many of the, the issues that anthropologists step into or come into as scientists and researchers um, are political. Mm-hmm. So how, um, what has it meant for you, you know, kind of on a, on a personal level to, to negotiate the difficulties of this and, and, and to have relationships with, you know, the communities 
long-standing, long-term relationships with the communities that have been affected by all of this. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I think being in, in the middle of this whole thing has not been easy. I worked, I was going to the Gulf all the time for a long time, right? And I have very close ties with the communities, ties that are, are always going to be there. I respect the communities a great deal. I, and then you have to take this position that you sort of have to defend the communities because they are being under attack over and over again. I, at some point, somebody in the Fisheries in Institute in Mexico called the head of the Bureau of Applied Research in Anthropology here saying that I was responsible for, for uh, you know, pushing the communities to go on strike or... Somehow, which was ludicrous, right? I, I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm, uh, I'm writing down what these communities are doing because I believe in what they are doing, and I be, because I believe that their perspective is important. So, I've also suffered sort of the backlash from the conservationist groups about my involvement, and I'm not Mexican, right? So it, it. it it's been very discouraging in many ways because I feel that I've been fighting against the current all the time. By not being Mexican, it's even easier to be ignored in what you say. Um, sometimes I wish I had been more politically involved, but it's it's not easy. It's not easy to see how these communities are crumbling, not because there isn't any fish, but because of the action of those that have power. And because I am not Mexican, it, I think it makes a difference mm -hmm. um, in terms of how much, how much I can do and I can be heard. Also, being an anthropologist doesn't give you the credentials uh, to mm -hmm. speak with a fishery biologist or mm -hmm. with, it's not even the fishery biologist, because I think the fishery biologists have a more open mind than a lot of the conservationist groups. You can talk to ecologists, actually. Mm -hmm. that have an open mind and they they understand that that communities might play a role but it hasn't been easy and that's why i decided to do the video because i want to give a voice somehow or to facilitate the voice of the communities at the same time when you facilitate in such a political situation and something happens in the communities like somebody gets killed or that's a hard thing to deal with as well so I, what can I say? It's, it has been difficult and I have pulled away from the Gulf for many, many years. And then I decided to go back. So I have this, you know, back and forth relationship. I do research in other parts of the world, but, but the communities in the, in the Gulf of California are always in my heart <laughs> mm -hmm. because I, I've seen the damage that all this has caused that is unnecessary. It really is unnecessary. These communities are you know, if, if they are overfishing, they can they can manage things better and they are intelligent enough to actually look into conservation with with the partnership of, of biologists and fishery managements mm -hmm. managers. But I don't know. So it's been it's been hard. What yeah. but it's harder for them. So I I shouldn't I don't know. Am I answering your question? No, no, I think it's well, I, I just I think a lot of times. Um, those of us who work in, in um, you know, these large academic institutions and we do our research and, you know, somehow we're supposed to just kind of like, well, you know, the the 
the gold standard is to be dispassionate observers of the phenomena mm -hmm. that we <laughs> explore. Yes. But I, I believe that's changing for the better in many ways, but it's still there nonetheless. And I think, you know, it kind of speaks to the to what you were saying earlier, um, the, the fact that somebody, you know, called uh, the director of the Bureau of Applied Research to report on you to say that you were an outside agitator. I mean, that's the that's the oldest play in the mm -hmm. dirty playbook, you know, is to say, well, you know, these simpletons don't have the wherewithal, don't have the understanding to advocate for themselves. They can't possibly do that. So it has exactly. to be somebody from the outside, you know. It's right. Such a typical thing. Yeah, that is exactly what it is. Yeah. So I really appreciate you being able to, you know, you're not an automaton and you, mm. you have a deep, uh, deep, longstanding engagement with um, with these different communities. And it's pretty heartbreaking to see, to me, um, you know, what the implications of what, what seems to be a very um, reductionist view of a complex situation <laughs> and right. then translating that into policy. Exactly. Uh, that really affects people's lives. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, and I, you know, one thing that I, I think we do have a responsibility. We as anthropologists are going in, we are witnesses to what is happening, mm -hmm. you know, at a human level. Um, so we do have a responsibility to be vocal and to be political. Mm -hmm. um, it is hard to do in the context in which we work because we have so many other responsibilities around us, right? We have to teach, we have to, you know, do all these other things. We are advocates and I do in my classes with my students, I talk about these issues. So we cannot pretend that we are not witnesses. Mm -hmm. uh, and as such, I think we do have the responsibility that academia doesn't teach us that we should have. Yeah. But I think as I'm an applied anthropologist and as an applied anthropologist, that has always been a clear thing in my mind mm -hmm. that um, that I have to somehow be uh, vocal about what is happening. Mm -hmm. Not only, you know, for the sake of my academic career, but be vocal in forums that are not academic as well. Yeah. Well, Marcella, I think that's a beautiful place to end our conversation. And uh, maybe we, once you have had a chance to go back uh, to the upper Gulf, we can do a follow-up conversation on this really important topic. Yes. I'm, I'm glad to be, um, to be doing this. I think it is important. And I don't do it often enough. So if you need anything else, just let me know. Any Thank other questions, just let me know. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.